0: Learning to lead yourself, starting with figuring out what's really, really important to you. Why that is so valuable is because when we're stepping into the unknown, where there isn't an answer as such, we don't know the answer. It gives us those things that we believe in, those stands, as I've mentioned, they give us a handrail. Welcome to the Max. A podcast for leaders and entrepreneurs. Hosted by Viv Ma Kramer.
1: Hi there. Welcome to the Max Podcast. I have a very interesting guest. I made this one with care and love. And the one thing I would like you to do is subscribe to my channel. I will be very grateful if you do. But with no further ado, let's start the interview. So, uh, Peter, thanks for being with us we were just uh, talking a little bit about, uh, well, running, uh, other sports, uh, challenges, uh, problems and opportunities. So we already uh, started the interview, um, but uh, (laughs) before we start uh, talking about your great book, uh, uh, Leading from the Jump Seat, because uh, you wrote that book, this was not your first book because you're also wrote a, a, co, a co-author of the book of uh, of, of Simon Senek. Yeah, right. The Why. So yeah. I think a lot of people know that book already. It's an interesting book as well. And um, we are going to talk about your book. And uh, I really enjoyed it because it's a very rich book. Uh, it uh, has a lot of interesting content and wisdom and practical advices and um, with a lot of illustrations of your life Mm. and uh, it's a real do book practical book and um, so um, before we start diving into your book can you tell us a little bit about your story because you did a lot of different and a lot of interesting things already in your life where should you start because it's a lot
0: (laughs) well it is and well, I, I've been remarkably fortunate, I think, for in the, the opportunities that I've had. So, I joined the Royal Air Force as a pilot, um, and I spent about twenty-five years in the Royal Air Force. And yes, I was a pilot, but I, I did many other things. You know, once you get promoted to a certain level, you tend not to fly that mm. much. You, you look after the ones that fly. But during my time, I um, well, I, I was a force commander. Uh, which is in charge of a lot of people during the the 2003 Iraq war, which um, weighed heavily on my shoulders. That was a a major uh, leadership moment for me. We flew large, unarmed, undefended air refueling airplanes, and we tended to get shot out a fair amount. So my concern for my people um, weighed heavily on me. Um, Thankfully, everybody I took out, I brought home safely. Mm. Uh, I've taught at the UK Defence College on, on leadership, uh, senior officers there. Uh, I've been a negotiator for NATO when the Berlin Wall came down with the Russians, which was fascinating. I've um, led $20 billion uh, programs, procurement programs, which stretched me. I've negotiated with the US State Department on export licensing. Good heavens. I worked for a consultancy. Um, in oil and gas and mining in the Middle East, in Kazakhstan, in Africa. Uh, I've been a speaker. I spend a lot of time, about eight years, with Simon Sinek, helping him to take his message around the world. I've visited 93 countries the last count, uh, worked with several hundred leadership teams um, from every business you could imagine. And so really all of that made me think, well, Let's put this together in a book yeah. where all the things that I've learned um, can perhaps help others. Yeah. And I, I chose the, the metaphor of, of flying because uh, that was part of my background. And the flight deck of an aircraft, a large passenger jet, is a microcosm of leadership for me. So I, I've used that to, uh, to illustrate many of, of the ideas. Yeah. So that's been my journey yeah. uh, so far. Yeah. And uh, as I say, I feel hugely privileged. Yeah. Well, well if you read a book, um,
1: you write about well planting the seed for for, the, for your work, I believe, be- before you uh, became a pilot, because there wasn't belief. W- why you started uh, studying and and
0: become a pilot? Yes. Well, we become defined actually by the the choices that we make, and I made some. Choices early on in my life, which linked to what I call now the, the things that are really important to me. And I'm not talking about the latest iPhone or <laughs> a pay rise or whatever. No, I'm talking about what's deeply important to you. And to give you an idea, a couple of years ago, I had a phone call from my wife and she'd been involved in a car accident. And uh, as for most people, family is really important to me. I dropped everything, I think I was on a call. At the time, but everybody said, yes, go, go, go. And I I dropped everything and I, I went to go and support my wife. She was only a couple of miles away. But here's the thing: that energy released inside of me had me step into the unknown.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I didn't know what I was gonna find. I didn't know what I was gonna do necessarily, but nothing on this planet would have stopped me. Mm-hmm. And so that made me think, well, if we can tap into those other things which are also deeply important to us, then we've got a reservoir of energy to draw from when we're stepping into the unknown. And leadership is about stepping into the unknown. And so that started actually when I look back, when I chose to go to university, you know, because the the question is how do you identify those things that are really important to you? And I believe it's the choices we make. And, for example, 40-odd years ago now, I went off to university to study two subjects, computing and electronic engineering about which I knew nothing. But I managed to get a place to do a double degree. And the reason that I chose those subjects was because at the time, my parents, they'd both lost their jobs. Um, We didn't have much money at all. And I thought that those subjects would help me get a really well-paid job. And um, I wouldn't be dependent on my parents. I wouldn't be a burden to them. And also, I'd be able to help them. So that was all the first things that came up for me in terms of what's really important. And that is Not being a burden on others and being able to support others as well. And that gave me the courage to step into the unknown to study this degree about which I knew nothing. But then two years into that course, something else happened in the world. It was 1982 and the Falkland Islands was invaded by Argentina. The Falkland Islands way down the South Atlantic. Now the Falklands was and still is a British territory and people down there consider themselves British. And for me, it was nothing about the politics. It was more about someone imposing their will on others that lit that fire inside of me. So after two years, I decided to leave my degree course and join the Royal Air Force because I felt that the Royal Air Force, I could be a part of a team that in future could help those who could not help themselves. And so that started to illuminate in me something else that's deeply important, which is the notion of mutual respect. And that for me to this day is so important to me that if I see anything in the world where there's a breakdown of mutual respect, it lights that fire mm. inside of me mm. um, to see how I can help or what I can do. Mm. So choices help to Identify. If we care to, to look and reflect, they help to identify what's deeply important to us. And if we choose then to harness those, they become what I talk about stands—a uh, stand for mm. something, which is so much more powerful than a position. Yeah, against. that's
1: an interesting difference you make. To come back to your point on one of the things you talk about, indeed, in your book is is uh, in one of the first chapters because that's it's it's, it's sort of a fundament what is most important in life or really important in for you in life and you say mostly it's it's family and close friends is that true
0: well it, it's it's one of those yeah. things you know i i think um i i'm have a mutual respect for others you know not everybody has got a, is in a fortunate position where or fortunate place where family maybe is Really important to them, you know. The, there are a lot of people who don't have that, um, well, that that privilege or opportunity, you know. Um, so these are the things that are just really important to me. And I, I, I mentioned at the start that I talk about family being really important because I think, although there are exceptions, many people can relate to that in one form or another. Um, uh, and I, I wanted the reader to be able to connect to that fire that i'm talking yep. about that ignites inside mm. of us when we choose to step into the unknown mm. and we're driven by something
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: um yeah so that's why i mentioned family. so is,
1: is, are there any other examples except family and, and and friends that you can identify that can be important for people to light that fire as you say
0: well as i say it is really down to the choices we make so for me the examples i've given in the book uh, are there hopefully to to have people think mm-hmm. about their own lives but there are there are key moments i believe in everybody's life where we choose to turn left instead of going right and for example me going to university to study those two subjects uh, there are many people who is said to me, you're not really, you're going to go and study those, you've got no background in them. But I was resolute. I was absolutely committed. And the reason why was because I wanted to get a good job to help support my family, you know, that that was the reason. So nothing was going to get in my way. Um, So I think we can all look, should we choose at those moments where we have chosen perhaps to go against the stream to go against uh the advice of of others because it just feels right to Mm -hmm. us inside Mm -hmm. and it's that motivation um that, that moves us forward and well we can get more fundamental actually around this because i believe that everything that's important to us everything is driven by just one of two things it's driven either by fear Or by love. Mm -hmm. And I'll come back to love because in a a business context, people get a little bit switchy (laughs) sometimes when I talk about love because it feels uncomfortable. but But I'll put it into context. Fear though, first of all, you know, fear is very useful if we step into the road and there's a car coming, it has us jump back because our life is in danger. But thankfully for most of us, that doesn't occur very often. Unfortunately, fear also raises its head when we sense that our livelihood, our status, or our reputation Mm. are under threat. And when we feel those things are under threat, fear kicks in. And fear then can show up as anger. It can show up as timidity or meekness. Mm. But the big one, it can show up as ego. Mm. And as you will know, ego is all about I. It's about me. And when we're just... Driven by our ego, our view of the world closes yeah. down. It's all about us. Yeah. We forget about others. We start seeing the world as a place of scarcity um, and a win-lose mm. mentality. And in my experience, that really doesn't serve us either as well leading ourselves or leading others. Yeah. So, so. But we have a choice. <laughs> so sorry. No, no,
1: no. On. So, so there, there, the, the, the to take a position comes in. If that process um, is is that that somebody is more into ego, that people ha- have, have the habit or, or standing more in, the, in, their, in their position instead of taking a stand for where they believe in. Yeah,
0: so let, let's link those two together because I think you raised an important point. You know, a position is against something. And we hear we only need to open a newspaper or turn on the, the TV or social media we find lots of positions being taken and positions can be very powerful, but their weakness is that they are dependent on a counter position, a counter view to exist. And if there's no counter view, then your position dissolves. Mm -hmm. I I talk about a narrow street near to our house um, where there's only enough room for one car to drive down that street in one direction at a time. And sometimes you get two cars and they meet head on, they stop, bumper to bumper. And each driver takes up a position against the other driver. And what that might look like is one driver would be saying, my journey is more important mm-hmm. than yours. You back up to the parking pay- place and let me pass. The other one might be saying, well, you are driving too fast. You need a backup. And so their positions get entrenched. Yep. But occasionally two cars will come together And one driver will immediately reverse to a passing place. And that is because that driver has got a stand, a stand for being courteous on the Mm. road. So as this guy, he can drive on past. This guy, his position immediately dissolves because there's no counter position. The guy who reversed up to the passing place, his stand becomes stronger. Mm. Um, A stand is like planting your flag on an island and saying, look, this is what I stand for. And anybody Mm -hmm. sailing past can see what you stand for. And if they stand for that, so they can come and join you. But importantly, if they don't believe that, they can sail on by. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: That's okay. You know, a stand is not about making everybody else agree. No, it's not a religion or
1: whatever. No, no. So that's why you...
0: Well, it's about what you believe, yeah. not about what others no, believe. No. You know, I, I've got um, many great friends who are very religious in lots of different faiths, um, but they don't force their beliefs down my throat. Uh, you know, I, I look to them and I, I have huge respect for them because of their, their dedication. Um, but that's their choice. That's their stand. If they took up a position... They would be taking up a position against me for not believing what they mm. believe. And then that's where it would, would potentially break yeah. down. But stands are very important, and positions tend to be fear based. Yep. Yep. Stands are always love based. Mm. Mm. And in this context, love is about thinking of others, it's about seeing a world that's full of possibility and opportunity rather than scarcity. And instead of ego, we choose to lead with humble confidence. Yeah. And humble confidence is where we're resolute about where we're going. Um, we're ready to make decisions when they need to be taken. But importantly, we are willing to listen mm. to the input of others yeah. uh, to help figure out what we need to do. Yeah,
1: nice, nice. Yeah. So because uh, I was uh, preparing uh, our, our interview and uh, of course, it's all about leadership and the way you can lead others or yourself as well. Absolutely. And um, yeah. and so you start. And, um, it's it's an advice uh, to know what's most important in your life in, in somebody's life. And uh, one of the questions I prepared is what does that that ha- has to do with leadership? You know. So that's what you just answered a little bit. Uh, but maybe you can elaborate on
0: this. Absolutely. You know, picking up on what you just said, I I believe that we need really to to figure out how to lead ourselves, not before we lead others necessarily, because it's a continuous process. I'm still learning. Um, But we we need to to be willing to reflect on ourselves and how we can better lead ourselves, because when we lead ourselves better we can lead others better too. And um, learning to lead yourself, starting with figuring out what's really, really important to you. Why that is so valuable is because when we're stepping into the unknown, where there isn't an answer as such, Mm -hmm. we don't know the answer. It gives us those things that we believe in, those stands, as I've mentioned, they give us a handrail to guide us. You know, so for example, um, during the 2003 Iraq war, uh, I remember, well, actually, (laughs) like all those things in the introduction, I mentioned all the things that I've done. What's common to all of those is that most of the time I felt completely out of my (laughs) depth. And the Iraq war was one of those two where I had lots of moments of doubts in terms of, you know, why am I leading these 200 people? Surely there are better people. Mm. You know, you have those doubts. Sure. And I think those doubts are okay because if you're always working within your comfort zone, I don't think we, we advance or grow. But I had those doubts. But as many will remember, in 2003, the Iraq war, um, before the war started, there was a lot of protests in many cities uh, in your country, in the UK, in the US, Australia, all over. And as a military person, that is very difficult because when you sign up for the military, you don't say, yes, I'll do my duty, except see footnotes one through 10, you know? Mm -hmm. you're, You're signed up. And that said, you like to think that you have the support of the majority of the population um, of of your country, and it wasn't clear that we did, but I had two best part of two hundred people looking towards me for guidance and so I needed to draw on my stands, my beliefs, and one of those was caring for mm-hmm. others and still is and I I remember I the, the night before the war started, or the day before, I, I gathered all my people for a photograph because it's something that you do. And after the photograph had been taken, I thought I've got to say something, you know, people are looking for me to say something. And I gathered everybody around me in a so a donut with me standing in the middle. I turned to my aircraft technicians, the people who kept these 40-year-old airplanes flying. I said to them, Engineers, you need to do your job. In other words, you need to ensure that these aeroplanes are serviceable for the pilots and the aircrew to fly. Yep. I then turned to the aircrew and the pilots. I said, your job is to fly every mission that we're given. Because if you don't, we won't refuel the fighter jets. And that was our job, refueling, air refueling. And if those fighter jets aren't refueled, then our people on the ground, won't get the air support they need and they will die. Mm-hmm. And I think leadership is often about pulling up the signal from the noise. Uh, you mentioned this actually on your website, you talk about the noise of the yep. world, Yeah, you know, and we have so much noise, so much input. I think it's our job to, to pull up that signal from all of the noise. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. In that that moment, Uh, I don't know where the words came from, but that's what I did. And that helped people to focus not on their own fears, but actually it came from a place of love. Love for their fellow servicemen wearing, you know, American, British, and Australians that happened uniforms they'd never met, but they knew they were depending on what we did for their lives. And all the politics and everything fell away. Mm. It was about, supporting effectively the persons to the left of you and the person to the right of you. And that's why my people put their themselves in harm's way night after night. And I should mention in acknowledgement to you, to them, you know, the results we were tasked with 479 missions. We flew 479 missions. So,
1: yeah.
0: But most importantly for me, everyone I took out there, I brought home safe to the families. Mm. So coming back to your question about figuring out what's really important to you as an individual, the reason for that is because it gives you that handle. You know, I might not, I certainly didn't have all of the answers back then in that particular situation. But what I did have was care for my people. It's really important to me, uh, supporting them, supporting their families, um, making sure everything was in place. Uh, For instance, I had, I think three of my people, whilst we were out in the desert for four months, three of them had grandparents who were close to dying or died. And we moved to heaven and earth to get them back home, to pull them out of the operational situation and get them yeah. home without question. Why? Because we had each other's backs yeah. and we cared for our people. That's just something that we did. And... Yeah. yeah it's really, that are really yeah it's really great yeah
1: it's really it's, it's very interesting and good good example i think because well if you if you look at our world besides the, the war situation we, uh, we we have all all kinds of problems we have to face as people as 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 leaders uh, when we get in yeah. insufficient information uh, you you mentioned that in your book as well an overload of information or conflicting conflicting uh, perspectives or uncertainty or doubts or fears, but we have no control over a lot of things. And uh, you challenge leaders uh, to cut through the noise, all those problems we can we can face mm. and to find
0: the simplicity, what really matters. It, it is. Yeah, Management's about handling complexity, but leadership is about creating simplicity. Uh, and simple is not necessarily easy, but... Can I share another sure. story, do. with you, which illustrates these points? I think it was, I think it was about 2017. I was on a speaking tour in um, Australia and New Zealand with um, with Simon Sinek. Simon was talking in the morning, and then I ran a session uh, for about four hours in the afternoon. Uh, it was wonderful. Often we'd have up to three thousand people, mm-hmm. and it was fabulous to take them through ideas. And we just finished. Uh, I just finished in Melbourne, and I needed to fly to Sydney. And it was a Friday afternoon, and the Melbourne to Sydney route is like a commuter route. Um, People fly to to Melbourne for the week and then fly home Mm -hmm. to Sydney to their their homes at the weekend. Only on this Friday, there were big thunderstorms around Sydney. Now, people couldn't see that because they were in Melbourne, but the effect was lots of flights were being cancelled and delayed. And I just decided to sit and wait to see what happened, see if I, my flight would, would go. Um But people around me were getting more and more frustrated and angry, wanted to get home. They couldn't see the reason for the delay because the thunderstorms weren't at Melbourne. Finally, my flight was called and I got on board the aircraft. And because I'm a pilot, I used to fly passenger jets. I thought this is going to be a tough one for the crew because we're going to have a couple hundred people on board who are really cross, they're annoyed, and that's not a great place Mm. to be, really, um, certainly for the cabin crew. But I sat towards the front of the aircraft. I could see Matthew. Matthew was the chief cabin attendant, and he obviously had a lot of experience. I say this because of what happened next. As he greeted the other passengers on board, he took their tickets. He greeted them each by name. Mm. Um, explained to them the reason for the delay. And he made it slightly different each time so as it wasn't repetitive. There was a young lad with his family who came on and Matthew identified it was his birthday, so he knelt down to the, uh, the lad and spoke to him about his birthday. I thought, this is very, very mm. interesting. Because what it accomplished was two things. One, first of all, it slowed down the number of uh, the rate at which people are getting on board, which is good because it meant that people could find their seats and store their luggage in the overhead rack without confrontation occurring, first point. Second point, by the time everybody was on board, the mood had completely changed. Everybody was relaxed. They were glad they were going home, and it it completely changed. And during the flight, I took him to one side, and I congratulated him. I said, you did a fantastic job there. I said, to to handle, you know, difficult passengers. And this is when he turned to me and he said, there's no such thing as a difficult passenger. What makes them difficult is how you choose to respond. Great. I thought, well, there's some wisdom from a guy who's clearly been doing this job for a long time. So linking it back to what we're saying, you know, I've given examples of me leading combat and whatever, And thankfully, not many people are faced with with that situation. But here we are, a much more everyday Mm. moment of a busy aircraft where it could have become very unpleasant. But Matthew chose to focus on what's important to him, which was caring for people, making sure they had a comfortable journey. That was his stand. And so he modified Mm. his approach to, to adjust the circumstances to pull up that signal from the noise, the hubbub and discontent around, and pull up the signal of, you know what, we're all in this together, it's all going to be fine, we're going to get to Sydney, and let's make this a really pleasant mm. present journey. That's the signal that he turned the volume up. Yeah, yeah. Where it would have been so easy for the discontent and frustration to have continued all the way to Sydney, so we always have that choice. Yes, and it comes from a choice of fear rather than uh, rather than. Sorry, <laughs> it comes from Freudian slipper. <laughs> comes from choosing love yeah. for something rather than fear on. Yeah,
1: something. yeah. So that, but, but that triggers me because you also make the difference between reaction and response. So this is about you yes. can choose your your reaction. That's an interesting differentiation you make because well you say sometimes we plan things or we try to take control of a situation out of fear and and things work out wrong and you you advise us to have hope or to uh, to lead from hope instead of fear yeah. and to hold on to hope what you say is to make a commitment
0: Yeah so you've got quite a few things there for you so i'll just quickly un- unpack it difference between a, a reaction yep. and response reaction is often visceral mm-hmm. uh, it comes from the limbic system it comes from a place of fear um, it, it's often associated with the the, the freeze yep. fight or flight yep. response so for example on an aircraft a big aircraft uh, as a pilot if you have an engine fire you'll have a big red light and a very very loud bell that goes reaction for an untrained person would be to panic yep. Or to freeze yeah and that wouldn't help anybody so instead we practice the correct drill for that and it then becomes a response which is not fear-based a response that the checklist that we go through which is memorized uh, it comes from having sat down or very experienced people sitting down pilots and engineers to figure out what you need to do to put out an engine fire on an aircraft so We replace the fear-based reaction with a love-based, actually, response Mm -hmm. to the situation. And what that does, because it's near automatic, we apply that response very, very quickly, but it gives us thinking time. It allows our brain to settle into the the situation, figure out what we then need to Mm -hmm. do next. And we all have opportunity to identify moments that could generate a fear-based reaction and instead have a response. So for example, if you run a business, one thing these days we need to be careful of, if you've got a a big business, is being targeted by hackers or having a a data breach. Well, that's something that you can plan for, such that if it does happen, rather than reacting in panic, we have a response which is pre-considered and um, and focused and logical. So that's the difference between a Reaction response, and we can identify those those moments and plan for them. Um, <clears throat> you mention as well hope, and this is something I pick up on a lot in the book because I believe that we need to be as leaders it 's part of our role is to be a guardian of hope and I distinguish hope over optimism optimism is is great, but often optimism has got um, a timeline associated with it. You know, it's uh, well, things will be better by Christmas mm. or New Year, or or pick a date. Yeah, you know? uh, and if that moment comes and goes, and what we hope- what we we anticipate, what we're optimistic for, doesn't materialize, then it eats into our soul, and we feel oh. hope. On the other hand, is enduring. Mm. It's an unshakable belief. That there will be an after, and this comes from um, Admiral Jim Stockdale. Mm. Actually, he was the most senior um, prisoner of war, U.S. In prisoner oh, of yep. war during the Vietnam mm. War, and he and um, many, many of his men were locked up prisoners of war. And some of them survived, some of them didn't. And he was asked in an interview afterwards what distinguished between those who survived and those who didn't, and he said, "Well," The ones who perished whilst they were prisoners, they were the optimists. Those were the, the guys who said, "Yeah, we'll be out of here by Christmas." And Christmas came and went. So they, oh, "I'll be out of here by mm-hmm. Easter." Easter came and went. And he said, "It, it broke yep. them." He said, "But the people who survived were those who had hope—a hope that someday we're going to get out of here."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I think we can we can link that to. Current present day circumstances, true, true. you know, there's a lot of challenges going on in the world at the moment. Mm. And if we are in any way leading others, or we'll just lean ourselves to be a guardian of that hope, to keep that hope no. alive,
1: I think that would. We'll, yeah, sorry, it. I think that will be a, no, no, a big Karen. challenge for a lot of leaders because, well, they're pushing themselves to 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 keep optimistic, you know, for others. And uh, keep uh, up the good you hope, know, that you know. But it's, it's more optimism than than hope. So so how how do, do they learn yeah. to to be hopeful or, and, and and to be to express their hope uh, towards the other other people?
0: Well, I I think there are several things that contribute to that. Um, one of them is, first of all, an unshakable belief yourself that there will be an after. Mm-hmm that it, it will be better or different. Yeah. Um, I, I tell a story of, of, it's called The Lady in the Tower. Um, I, I did a, a peacekeeping mission to Sierra Leone. Uh, and I, I landed the aircraft amongst all these mortar craters on the airport and it had been bombed out. And as, as the aircraft had been refuelled, I walked over to the air traffic control tower to go and say hello to the guys I've been speaking on the radio to as we flew in. As I walked up this control tower, there were bullet holes everywhere. All the windows had been shot out. But I took the, the spiral staircase up to the top, and I walked into the control room, and the two controllers were there. There were no other aircraft that day, so they took the headsets off and turned around to greet me. And then there was this little old lady in the corner who'd been sitting on a chair knitting. And she saw me, and I was wearing my uniform, and she jumped up and she practically ran across to me and grabbed me and hugged me, saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I didn't quite know what to make of it at the time, but I later realized that she wasn't thanking me. She was thanking what I represented in that uniform. And after over a decade of the most atrocious civil war, we had helped to bring some peace and stability to that country again. Mm. And here she was, she was a little old lady, and I know that throughout that time, she'd maintained hope. Mm. She didn't know when things were going to end, but she just kept that ember of hope alive. And then others like me and my colleagues came in and blew some oxygen on Mm. that ember and that hope grew, Mm. you know. But I'm absolutely convinced that who she was being and the hope that she maintained spread. It becomes infectious and others hang on to that hope too. So we always have the choice of hope. And the the final thing in your question, you you talked about commitment. And I think commitment can help us maintain that hope as a leader. And what is commitment? Commitment is where, quite simply, we make a promise to ourselves. People often look at commitments in terms of contracts that Mm -hmm. we sign or what we commit to doing to Mm -hmm. others. But actually, that means nothing unless we've made that promise to ourselves that we're going to follow through. And when we have that commitment, it's, if it links to something that's really important to us, a stand, then it will give us that courage to carry on even when we don't know the answer. And that brings me to the last point answering your question, which is developing the strength to, or the ability and confidence to lead when we don't know the answer. Mm. That is so vital. When we are hanging on to hope. And yet it's difficult because in our society we are, we tend to be rewarded for knowing the answer. Mm. And so then when we're in situations where we don't know the answer, unless we build the confidence and the strength to lead in those times, we become the constriction in the pipe because it's depending on us individually to figure out what to Mm. do. But when we have the humble confidence, not ego. We put ego to one side when we have the humble confidence to say, look, this is the commitment I've made. This is what we're going to do. I don't know how to do it, but hey, if you believe this too, then help me figure it out. We then can link into what I call the collective genius of our team to help figure out the problem. And we then no longer are the constriction in the pipe Mm. and we accelerate Mm. progress. So that, in my mind, is linked very closely to hope, because hope is not about knowing the answer. It's not about knowing when things are going to turn around. It's being comfortable in the knowledge that there will be an after, there will be something different, and having the courage to hold on to that and having the humble confidence to lead in those situations when we don't know fully what the outcome will be. No. Um mm. So it's all, it's all, well, yeah, all it's, it's things.
1: all linked. And, and it's, it's, I think it's a great uh, summary of the point you're trying to make of leading from the jumpsuit last couple of, well, uh, yes. So. Um, you know, but because uh, it's, 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 it's about, uh, uh having the confidence and, uh, knowing who you are, but also what is, what is important for you and really stand for what is important for you as a leader, also as, as others uh, for others. But um, to be able to uh, handing over the control or things that has to be be done.
0: Uh, That that goes to the the crux of it, really, because leading from the jumpstick, the the name comes from uh, a time when I I just certified a brand-new captain on Mm -hmm. our large passenger jet. And uh, I was hitching a, a ride back, and I, I sat in the jump seat. And the jump seat is the the seats on the flight deck, immediately behind the two pilots. You know, it's often empty, but a qualified crew member can sit there and hitch a yeah. ride, and you're close enough you can touch the pilots. And that's where I was sat, and we just got airborne out of San Francisco, and we had an emergency just a, a few hundred feet off the ground. And what I chose to do in the next couple of seconds would dictate whether me and the 140 other people on board would survive or not. Mm. But here's the thing, I did absolutely nothing. I sat there quite calmly with my hands in my lap because in that moment, I didn't need to leave. I needed to become a great follower. Mm. I needed to give Callum, this new captain that I just certified, I needed to have him feel yep. that I had his mm. back, that I had confidence in him. So he could then do the job that he'd been trained to do. And I'm speaking to you now, so obviously it worked out all right. But Mm -hmm. this gave me the notion of leading from the jump seat because, you know what, we we might not be all pilots sat in a physical jump seat, but in life and in business, um, we do find ourselves in that situation where we are handing over control. It's inevitable. You know, if you're a CEO of a company, at some stage, you're going to retire. Mm -hmm. If you're the leader of a team, you'll switch teams. Even as a parent, you know, our children grow up, leave home and start to lead their own Mm. lives. So it's inevitable that we do take a step back, we hand over control. It's going to happen. Leading from the jump seat is acknowledging that and say, right, how do we lead with intent? How do we lead in such a way that we prepare our people to lead when we've taken that step back? And often leadership is about, Or people see it as about um, retaining or growing one's own power. Mm -hmm. Jump seat leadership is about empowering others. It's about lifting them up so they can then continue to carry forward those things that we feel is really important to us once we've taken a step Mm -hmm. back. That's what leading from the jump seat is is all about. The, the book is a, a how-to. Yeah, uh, to it's a great
1: start for uh, reading, reading your book, reading the the, the the whole situation around your jump seat uh, adventure, and uh, making think, yeah. your point. Uh, what uh, leading from the jump seat really means for uh, for you. Um, totally, on the, another uh, uh, question I, I'm still still um, I'm busy with is. One thing you mention in your book as well is uh, about being authentic. Because, Mm. well, being authentic is a very popular term nowadays. And uh, it's all about being being authentic uh, as much as you can. But you have a different perspective on that.
0: It always bothered me a little bit. I couldn't quite put my finger on why, but it bothered me this current narrative about being authentic because i look back on my life i thought you know what there are times when i wasn't authentic and by authentic i mean i wasn't sharing how i truly felt Um, but that was the right thing Mm. to do at the time and so i owe it actually to the the great um thought leader seth godin i was listening to a podcast and he addressed authenticity and he helped me put words around what I felt. And he said this, he said, we give up the rights to be authentic by the time we're about nine or 10 years old. He said, look, as a four-year-old child, when you're screaming because you're hungry or tired, that's authentic. But as we grow up, we need to put a filter on that. Yeah. And that filter is integrity Mm. and linking back to one of my earlier stories about leading during the gulf uh, the iraq war of 2003 my authentic self would have shared the fact that i was afraid that i was unsure about what we're doing that would have been authentic Mm. but it would not have been in service of my people Mm. who are looking towards me for some certainty some Mm. guidance to be a a foundation when they were going to be putting their lives on the line. I had to have integrity linked to the role that I Mm -hmm.
1: have.
0: So integrity is a filter. And uh, a friend of mine and great leader, Marion Stefani, she talks about being consistent as a leader. So when people pitch up on a Monday, you're still the same person in terms of what's moving you forward as as the person on the the, the Friday of the previous week, you know, consistency so people then can anchor
1: on mm, who you are yeah.
0: and how you show up. Mm. And I I think when we choose to take on a formal role of of leadership as a team where people are looking towards us for guidance, then we've got to remember that authenticity is fine, but integrity is better. Mm. Yeah. It's a bit like the optimism and hope thing optimism is fine to a certain yeah. point but hope is more enduring yeah
1: yeah, yeah so that's uh, true i think uh, the, the, um, the whole thing about to try to be authentic as possible it's a little bit ego centered a little bit and yeah. uh, it can be yeah and yeah. instead of um, of yeah trying to really care about others I think it's better not to be authentic all the time, because then
0: I think yeah. so. I, I, I think you you make a really good point there, P. It is about authenticity comes from here. It's the, the ego. Yeah. You're putting yourself first, and you know it's up to others how people deal with that. Is the sort of mental attitude mm-hmm. integrity is thinking about others and how they will be affected potentially. By who you're choosing to be and how you're showing your your feelings. Yep. Um, I there's I, I hear the phrase quite often about um, tough love, <laughs> you know, and that is used when people are about to give um, unfiltered feedback to someone. Quite often, in my experience, tough love can be just an excuse to vent what you're thinking about another person to that person without actually thinking mm. through how they're going to hear mm. it. And how they're going mm-hmm. to respond to it. So, yeah, I, I I think before giving someone tough love or before in a leadership role showing your authentic feelings, pause for a moment
1: mm-hmm.
0: and look at the situation from the perspective of those that you're hoping to to influence or guide, mm-hmm. and it uh, might land with them. Yep. Uh, and that's that's integrity coming to the equation. Mm-hmm. Well, Peter.
1: I already told you. I, I I think it's a very it's a great book. And I really recommend to everybody to 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 buy it and, and read it. It's not a book that you can read just in a couple of days because you really if you really want to use it, then it will take a little bit longer to practice it. <laughs> but that's a good thing. Um, so so where can people find you about your work or? Uh,
0: well, uh, I'm in the usual places. My website is leadingfromthejumpseat.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also, uh, well, on there, first of all, there are uh, videos and, and resources and more coming soon. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, also on Twitter and IngramSpark, uh, Ingram Instagram, <laughs> <laughs> um, and very, very occasionally on TikTok. But we'll see about <laughs> how that develops. Okay. Um, and the, the book is available uh, in paperback, hardback, ebook, book audio book. Great, um, great. Amazon and lots of other places. Right. So, uh,
1: Great. Yeah. So wh- what you know, are your thing? plans?
0: What are my plans? Um, what, for well, the, the next yeah. year?
1: Your next year.
0: So I'm, I'm working with um, my team. There's quite a few of my team over in the States. Mm-hmm. And we'll be developing more resources for people to take the ideas that are in the book and to share them with others, use them themselves, but also to share with others, to train others so we'll be developing that um travel restrictions permitting i'll continue to travel around the world as i say i've I've done 93 countries so i'm hoping to visit hoping to visit a few more uh, and share these ideas through keynotes and, and workshops so mm. uh, again stay tuned if you're curious and those will appear on the uh on the website. so you don't have so, a team uh,
1: yet in in holland
0: i don't have a team in holland no, not as such. <laughs> <laughs> but of that's course, a pity. The, the book is <laughs> it is a resource for yeah, right the like to, to use the true, ideas. True. so uh, yeah that's what it's about. Sharon. Yes.
1: Well, I would like to thank you a lot for this uh for this interview. And uh, thanks so much for joining me today. And I wish you all the best. It's been an
0: with, with with
1: um well get the message out from uh, about leading from the jump sheet.
0: Thank you very much indeed. It's been a delight delight talking to you, Pfeiff, and thank you for having me on your uh, program. Thanks.
1: Thanks for joining me today. If you'd like to hear more about me and The Max, go to the Max.partners and don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode.